Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda, a podcast series focusing on the evolving complexities of the sustainability landscape with a view on addressing current issues in a concise format to help you navigate and take action. I'm your host, Dominique Barker. Please join me as we explore today's most pressing matters with special guests that will give you some new perspective and help you make sense of what really matters. And then maybe even more importantly, when does that trajectory for offsetting or for market-based measures switch from allowing general offsets, which could be paying for someone else not to emit carbon, into removals? In partnership with the Center for Climate Aligned Finance, or the Center, we're pleased to welcome you to the fifth and unfortunately our final episode of our series with them. On today's episode, we'll be focusing on the aviation sector and the Sustainable Aviation Buyers Alliance, also known as SABA. It's an initiative by the RMI and the Environmental Defense Fund to drive investment towards sustainable aviation fuel or SAF through a certification system and decarbonizing aviation generally. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Andrew Chen. He's head of RMI's sustainable aviation team. We're pleased to welcome him to the sustainability agenda. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. So let's start by setting the stage. How carbon intensive is the global aviation industry? And maybe you could give a bit of an overview for our audience today on where those emissions are coming from, where the decarbonization opportunities lie, and I suppose why it's so difficult to decarbonize the sector. Great. Yeah, happy to. Just to set the scene in terms of aviation and its emissions, Globally, aviation accounts for roughly two to maybe three percent. So let's call it two and a half percent of global CO2 emissions or global greenhouse gas emissions. That is an important fact in, the, in that it's relatively small today when you think about the total mix of things. But as other sectors of the economy and as other activities are able to decarbonize, they will do so at a much more rapid pace than aviation. So aviation, along with a few other sectors, are generally considered hard to abate meaning that it's difficult to take carbon out of the underlying value chains. But what that means is that if aviation doesn't speed up its act and and head towards net zero as quickly as possible, it could stick out like a sore thumb. So it it could go from representing 2% of today's global emissions to representing something like maybe 10 to 15% of global emissions in 2050. Overall, aviation emits in the neighborhood of one metric gigaton of carbon. So that is a billion metric tons of carbon. It's it's quite a substantial amount of carbon when you think about it in those terms. And there are a number of efforts that the industry has been embarking on over the years to try and help reduce that and to set more aspirational and higher ambition goals to reduce carbon and get to net zero as quickly as possible. Generally speaking, they fall into four buckets or four areas of, of effort. The first is around operations and efficiency, which is a traditional proven area for aviation. So how do you fly your plane? How cleanly and efficiently can you fly your plane? And that's a question of airspace management, generally speaking, and and making sure that we're providing the most efficient paths or routes for individual aircraft to fly. Another traditional area for the industry is on engine efficiency or how clean is the technology that you're using to fly with? And this is an area where the industry has historically been very strong, making, generally speaking, year-on-year improvements in efficiency. 
And if you think about that, that's pretty core to their business model as fuel costs represent roughly a third of their overall operating costs. So anything they can do to burn less fuel is generally going to be within their plans going forward. A third area is around infrastructure and specifically sustainable aviation fuel. So this is a critical pillar for the industry and one that we're laser focused on within the Sustainable Aviation Buyers Alliance. And that is for a number of reasons. Um, one, it is the most effective and available technology today to reduce carbon from the industry. It's a drop-in ready fuel. That means it can be mixed with other fuel, be used in all of today's aircraft with some specifications for requirements of blend percentages and things like that. But it's also important because as you move out towards 2050, despite the fact that we'll start seeing more electric aircraft and we'll even see some other types of propulsion like hydrogen, we will still see a large proportion of primary energy for aircraft coming from liquid fuels. So you have to find a replacement for those liquid fuels and you have to start scaling them up very rapidly in order to hit the targets that are necessary for aviation to get to net zero. And then the fourth and final basket or bucket of measure is around market-based measures. So as I pointed out, aviation will not be able to decarbonize as quickly as other parts of the economy will. And there's already a historic agreement um, set by ICAO, which is the UN regulator for aviation, on a scheme called CORSIA, or the Carbon Offset and Reduction Scheme for International Aviation, which requires that airlines purchase and retire carbon offsets so that they do not grow their net emissions above historic 2019 or 2020 levels. Thank you, Andrew. And and I'd really like to just put that into perspective. I appreciate that you said the aviation industry is 2 to 3% of global emissions or one gigaton. So just to remind everyone, and it's an important number, it's that 50 gigatons number or 50 billion tons per year of annual emissions, greenhouse gas emissions. So to put that into perspective, uh, the aviation industry, as as Andrew said, is uh, two to three percent of that fifty gigatons per year number. So, Andrew, in two thousand nine, the International Air Transport Association had called for a reduction of fifty percent in global aviation emissions by twenty fifty, compared to two thousand five levels. Are we on track for that goal? And I guess the key question is: Net zero possible for this sector? Yeah, thanks for that one. I I think the more important question is, how are we going to achieve net zero? So if you think back to when that goal was established, the concept of 1.5 degrees C and net zero was still not incredibly widespread. It it existed within the academic and scientific communities and the researchers looking at climate science. But that IPCC report on 1.5 degrees and net zero that came out in toward the end of October 2018 hadn't yet landed. So most of the world had not yet realized how important it was to limit global warming to less than 1.5 degrees C and how catastrophic it would be to get above that. So I think that's important to note in the context of the previous industry backed goal to have net emissions by 2050 compared to 2005 levels. Well, that was at its time a historic goal and the fact that it was the first time a global sector had volunteered and had had successfully gotten a goal ratified at an international level by ICAO, the UN body for aviation. 
It was set in the time of what we expected to be the most relevant target for aviation in terms of the, the climate science and the issue we saw with climate change at the time. As that has progressed, very, it's very clear that having of aviation emissions is not sufficient enough to meet a 1.5 degree target. And to be quite honest, there were some questions about whether or not that target would have even been sufficient to meet a two degrees warming scenario. So in light of that recent, more recent information on the impacts of, of warming above 1.5 degrees C, there was immediately a response from within the industry, but behind the scenes. And it was quite clear that we, we knew as an industry, we were going to have to revise that goal. That goal needed to be net zero. And the question became, how can we get as much of the industry and the value chain on board for a net zero goal? And how can we ensure that that goal is set for mid-century and that net zero goal isn't set for 2070 or 2080 or the sometime in the second half of the century? In terms of how we're doing or how the industry is doing with its aviation emissions growth, emissions are still growing from aviation. However, it's important to note two things. One is that every forecast will have some continued growth of emissions before we peak and before we start bringing down net emission levels towards a goal of zero net emissions by 2050. But the other important thing to note is that there has already been a disconnect between the growth in aviation demand and carbon intensity. So those efforts done by the industry and the value chain over the years to improve efficiencies and to improve how cleanly we fly and continually improve the technology with which we fly have allowed for that disconnect to happen where you don't see a growth in the carbon intensity per passenger mile or per revenue ton kilometer or any other metric you see for activity. So that's an important thing to note. And then the other thing to note is obviously with the pandemic, which was quite devastating to the aviation industry and to the travel industry as a whole, while we will see a drop and we've seen a drop in global emissions from the aviation sector due to that, all estimates and scenarios expect that that activity will pick back up within at least a few years time and we'll be back on track to, in a business as usual scenario, exceeding our targets. So there's quite a lot of work that has been going on during the pandemic, which is very, very great to see from the industry, from airlines, from aircraft manufacturers and the rest of the value chain to double down on those sustainability commitments. And most importantly, IATA, led by one of their sister groups within IATA called the Air Transport Action Group, or ATAG, recently revised that industry back goal to reach net zero global aviation emissions by 2050, which is, I think, a really historic landmark. Great. And you mentioned in our opening remarks or the opening question how there are four areas of efforts. Maybe we can zero in on fuel efficiency and how material that is in reaching net zero for the sector. Great. Yeah. I, fuel efficiency, as I was saying before, comes from two areas. It comes from how you fly your aircraft, how efficiently you can plan out the routes and avoid things like holding patterns or stacking once you arrive to your destination airport. But it also has to do with the technology that you're flying, the, the plane that you're flying, the engine that is burning the fuel that is propelling that plane. Both of those are quite critical to reaching net zero. As I was saying, the year-on-year -year improvements of both how efficiently you fly and how efficient the technology is that you fly with have been getting better. And historically, if you look back 25 years ago, we were incredibly more efficient for whatever metric you want to use in terms of aviation's carbon intensity. But that business as usual trajectory won't be enough to reach net zero and it has to be accelerated. 
And some of the ways that it will be accelerated is by the adoption of advanced propulsion technology. What I mean by that are other forms of energy other than a liquid fuel that will propel the plane. So that could include battery electric or that could include hydrogen as a form of, of fuel directly, or it could be a combination of hydrogen and a fuel cell providing that electricity to propel that aircraft forward. The challenge that we see with that is fundamentally a, a physics challenge. For long haul air travel, there are very large aircraft that fly very long distances. Right now, there are almost no trajectories of technology for battery electric or, or in some cases with hydrogen where you could see a feasible path to replacing liquid fuels in long haul aircraft. And that's just because of the energy and density and weight requirements of, of, of achieving what is quite significant in terms of you know, the modern marvel of, of sending people around the world in planes. And that's why when you come back to this picture of 2050 and how we'll meet net zero, more and more of the solutions that we are developing are centered around sustainable aviation fuels as an alternative to fossil-based kerosene for aviation. Thanks, Andrew. Maybe just to add, from a CIBC perspective, we would view hydrogen and other propulsion methods for not only the aviation sector, but important for long-haul trucking, for example, and maritime shipping industry. So you touched earlier on sustainable aviation fuel, or SAF. You spoke about how it's a critical piece. Can you tell our audience about sustainable aviation fuel and why it's important and what the challenges are to scale the fuel and what the opportunities are? Yeah, there's really quite a lot of challenges to talk about, but let's, let me focus on the opportunities. But first I'll describe what I mean by sustainable aviation fuel and, and generally what that definition includes. So sustainable aviation fuels typically today are going to be similar to a biofuel. So they're going to come from maybe a crop-based waste feedstock or other waste feedstocks that are then converted into a liquid fuel that can then be used and dropped into the exact same aircraft engine and really the aircraft's wing, which is where aircraft store their fuel and then be burnt and combusted in that aircraft's engine. So we refer to them as drop-in fuels because to even enter into an aircraft, they have to meet certain safety specifications and fuel standards. And right now, one small little nuance is that to be certified uh, and allowed to fly, fuel that's delivered to an aircraft can only be up to 50% sustainable aviation fuel. So it has to get blended with a traditional fossil kerosene before it's delivered to the aircraft. A really notable exception to this is the very recent flight that United accomplished using 100% SAF in one of their engines to help test the feasibility of that. We can get back to those technological limitations later. I think the more important aspect is what is SAF and, and why is it helpful for reducing carbon? So as with any biofuel, there is a life cycle carbon assessment that's associated with it. And in theory, if you're looking at that diagram and you're thinking about SAF as a biofuel, you have a standing area of land where a crop is growing. That crop is actually taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, turning it into carbon in the plant material itself. Once that's harvested, and in this case for SAF, once that, that crop waste or residue is harvested and refined, you can create a, a liquid product that can be combusted in an aircraft engine. 
in general, that biofuel SAF could result in up to an 80% life cycle reduction of carbon compared to fossil fuels today. And the reason it's not 100% is a little bit nuanced, but if you imagine, again, that diagram as a circle, at several points in that circle, when you go from a crop into a, a liquid fuel and back to, to combusting and putting emissions into the atmosphere, there are steps along that process like collection and refinement of the feedstock, refinery of the, of the actual fuel product and derivatives themselves, transportation, processing, blending requirements. At every step in that process, there's an opportunity for carbon to be emitted. And so from a life cycle assessment, that reduces the potential of that fuel to be a 100% carbon reduction. I spent a little bit of time talking about that because today, m almost all sustainable aviation fuel that is being used, which is a very small percentage of the total amount globally, comes from biofeedstocks. However, as we move into the future, other technologies for creating these sustainable aviation fuels become much more relevant. And so you move from something today, which is very much a biofuel to future fuels where you're using alcohol to jet pathways or other gasification pathways where you're turning a waste stream, maybe municipal waste or an industrial waste stream into a sustainable aviation fuel. And then finally, further down the road and something that is quite a high potential for carbon reduction are a type of fuel that are generally referred to as synthetic fuels or power to liquid fuels. So this is the concept of taking direct capture of carbon combined with green hydrogen and creating a synthetic hydrocarbon that you can refine to make molecularly look exactly like kerosene and act and formulate and operate just like we have today. With that type of fuel, because of its potential, and if you were able to use renewable energy sources to sequester or capture carbon and also to create hydrogen, then you are able to get up to a 99% or 99.9% you know, .9 carbon reduction potential. It could never be a true 100% carbon reduction just because of the every step in that process of going from different feedstocks into a final product could add some form of energy intensity and therefore some form of CO2E to, to those steps. But it is truly one of the most powerful potential SAF production types that we have out there and one that will require quite a lot more facilitation from a policy and technology standpoint to bring its costs down. If you can imagine today, the fuels that exist are in the neighborhood of two to three times more expensive than their fossil fuel analogs. And when you start talking about more future fuels like power to liquids, they are even more expensive. So they need even more work to help reduce those costs and to be able to scale up. I would just want to add, there's some really exciting Canadian technologies out there in renewable diesel and biofuels and, of course, sustainable aviation fuel. And this is a really growing and interesting area to pay attention to. So let's move to carbon offsetting. This is a big topic in the aviation industry. And carbon credits is, of course, an area that's close to CIBC's heart. So we've been paying attention to what's happening, and the aviation industry has always been really good about offering carbon offsets uh, on flights when, when they're sold. Can you talk about the role that offsets play and maybe make some comments about the future of offsets to the industry? Yeah, thanks. Um, I, I think 
It is a really important thing to point out. Um, and, and one of the reasons that aviation is an active player in the world of offsetting is precisely because it is a hard to abate sector. And it recognizes that the speed at which it will be able to decarbonize is not nearly as fast as the speed at which other sectors of the economy can. So rather than sitting back and saying, we're gonna invest all of our effort into the technology and the sustainable aviation fuels, there's been a strong acknowledgement that there has to be compensation for the climate impacts of aviation and offsetting represents a good way to do that today. I mentioned that, that big offsetting scheme called Corsia, the Carbon Offsetting and Reduction Scheme for International Aviation, which was put into legislation by ICAO and ratified by UN member states um, a few years ago. And that effectively caps net emission levels as a goal from 2020 onwards. And so therefore, if an airline increases its historic emission levels above that, that baseline, it's required to go out, purchase offsets, retire them, and therefore bring its, its net emission level down to roughly a 2020 or 2019 baseline. Generally speaking, there is, let's say, anxiety around the concept of offsetting. And it's not unique to aviation by any means. I think if you are to speak with a, a number of environmental groups and NGOs, many of which are partners with RMI, there has been rightfully so criticism of how offsetting schemes have functioned in the past. And there's an opportunity for some form of either double counting or other types of miscounting of, of carbon reductions or carbon avoidance from offsets in the past. So many of those issues have to get addressed and are actively being considered by groups like ICAO or other groups, including the UN CDM. So thinking about how do we improve offsets to, to improve transparency, reduce potential for fraud or, or any other nefarious activities. My take on offsetting is, is actually a bit more future looking. So right now that scheme Corsia is meant to cover the 2020 to 2035 period. And if you think about aviation on a trajectory to getting to net zero by 2050, there are still residual emissions that will exist all the way out to 2050. And to be quite honest, there will probably be some residual emissions, um, even with all the SAF and the electric and hydrogen technologies that will be deployed by that point in time. So the question becomes, what happens after 2035 with Corsia? When does that trajectory of just capping at net emission levels of 2020 start to actually come down and start pointing towards zero, how fast does that trajectory fall from 2035 onwards? And then maybe even more importantly, when does that trajectory for offsetting or for market-based measures switch from allowing general offsets, which could be paying for someone else not to emit carbon, into removals? So paying either to directly capture carbon from the air and store it away forever or use it again in a sustainable aviation fuel. And that becomes really important because as we know, any definition of net zero requires fundamentally two things, deep cuts in the emissions, that activity, that business, that organization, that economic sector is associated with, coupled with an equal amount of investment in carbon removals for whatever residual emissions still exist for that organization or entity or sector. Great. Well, we're completely aligned with the carbon marketplace that we're developing. We really see this as a platform that could help be a catalyst to create carbon removal credits because that is absolutely the future. It's carbon removal. And that's such an important piece of the decarbonization puzzle. 
Last question for you. What role can financial institutions play in decarbonizing the aviation sector? And how can they get involved in the Aviation Climate Aligned Finance Working Group that you are leading? Yeah, thanks for that question. I think there are a number of ways in which financial institutions can contribute. But most importantly, I I think the summary is that the, the finance community has a really significant role to play in speeding up the transition of the aviation sector to net zero in a few different ways. On one aspect, the finance community is able to allocate capital, which is in support of important new technology developments. So when we think about the fuels, the innovative technologies and business models, um, some of the other propulsions that we talked about with battery electric or hydrogen or whatever those concepts may be, there's a role for the finance community to play in helping to finance uh, that transition itself. Secondly, banks and financial institutions have a huge role to play in terms of the client engagement and advocacy that they have the potential to do. So as we know, banks are incredibly well connected across the entire aviation value chain and can be quite an effective player to help nudge or move that value chain along um, and become more ambitious and and play a bigger role individually in how they facilitate that transition. And then finally, banks are also a really crucial focal point within that value chain, as I pointed out, but they can help play a role in terms of promoting better transparencies, better disclosures, um, generally better reporting across the sector, especially on climate alignment, which can be incredibly influential in driving the rest of the value chain and the rest of the sector towards a net zero goal. Andrew, this has been incredibly informative, and I almost feel like we could have a second part. I'd love to hear more about airports, how governments can play a role, how COVID played a role in the past couple of years in terms of reducing demand. Thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in as well. Thanks so much. Please join us next time as we tackle some of sustainability's biggest questions, providing different perspectives to help you move forward. I'm your host, Dominique Barker, and this is The Sustainability Agenda. The materials disclosed on this podcast are for informational purposes only and subject to our code of conduct as well as IROC rules. The information and data contained herein has been obtained or derived from sources believed to be reliable without independent verification by CIBC Capital Markets and to the extent that such information and data is based on sources outside CIBC Capital Markets, we do not represent or warrant that any such information or data is accurate, adequate, or complete. Notwithstanding anything to the contrary herein, CIBC World Markets Inc. and or any affiliate thereof shall not assume any responsibility or liability of any nature in connection with any of the contents of this communication. This communication is tailored for a particular audience and accordingly this message is intended for such specific audience only. Any dissemination, redistribution, or other use of this message or the market commentary contained herein by any recipient is unauthorized. This communication should not be construed as a research report. The services, securities, and investments discussed in this report may not be available to nor suitable for all investors. Nothing in this communication constitutes a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any specific investments discussed herein. Speakers on this podcast do not have any actual implied or apparent authority to act on behalf of any issuer mentioned in this podcast. The commentary and opinions expressed herein are solely those of the individual speakers, except where the author expressly states them to be the opinions of CIBC World Markets, Inc. The speakers may provide short-term trading views or ideas on issuers, securities, commodities, currencies, or other financial instruments, but investors should not expect continuing analysis, views, or discussion relating to those instruments discussed herein. Any information provided herein is not intended to represent an adequate basis for investors to make an informed investment decision and is subject to change without notice. CIBC Capital Markets is a trademark brand name under which Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, CIBC, its subsidiaries and affiliates provide products and services to our customers customers around the world. For more information about these legal entities, as well as the products and services offered by CIBC Capital Markets, please visit www.cibccm.com.